So the book of Esther, um, it's a historical book. Um, it kind of falls in line with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it's a historical book really dealing with the return of the Jews uh, from their exile. So if you're familiar with history of uh, the Bible, they entered the land, they entered the promised land, and there were certain uh, things they had to do. And they, they're conditional blessings if you look at them that way, where if they did certain things, they'd be blessed. If they didn't do certain things, they would be cursed. And one of the results if they didn't do certain things is they would be exiled from the land. So they said they would do that. And they actually knew they would do that. And you read these prophecies of people coming along saying, yeah, if you come back, you know, we're going to bring you stuff back. So they were exiled for 70 years. And they were sent to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquered the, the south, remember the kings conquered the north, um, so there was a large exile to Babylon. Um, if you remember Daniel and the, the kingdoms that were coming from the, the sacks, we know Babylon was ahead of gold, um, and that's going to silver, which was the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's actually where we're at in history uh, when you study the book of Esther. Right now it's the Medo-Persian Empire that has conquered Babylon, and now that's no longer where we find ourselves uh, with this book this morning. So it's not really in chronological order either. Like if you look at your Bibles, it's in there as you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Esther really doesn't come at the end. Esther's right in the middle somewhere. So if you really want to look at it in chronological order, Esther should be between chapter 6 and 7 of Esther, if you look at it that way. So chronologically, that's where it should be placed. Um, the Jews have already been sent back. They already had the orders to be able to go back first time they went back was to build the temple, and then they recovered in Ezra. Ezra went back a second time to really teach the people the word, and then the third time was Nehemiah, and he went back and said, rebuild those cities, rebuild those walls, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, so that they could be back in the land, in the city, instituting the, the temple worship that uh, God's will for them when the exile was over. So that's really where it fits in uh, chronologically. Esther takes place, this book of Esther takes place about 483 B.C. to 473 B.C. Um, the author is unknown. We really don't have an idea who the author is. And also the interesting thing about Esther is that the name of God is actually never mentioned in Esther. It's actually the only book that the name of God is not mentioned. Um, but we do see the hand of God uh, throughout the entire book, which is amazing and really cool to see. Um, and you know, side note, his name is not mentioned throughout the book. It's actually never quoted in the New Testament either. It's not in all of the New Testament. But again, we do see his hand uh, throughout, throughout the whole book. We're just going to take chapters 1 through 4 this morning. Um, another time, we'll cover the rest of the book so we'll kind of get a bit into depth. And we'll get introduced to uh, Esther and Mordecai and then Haman and King, King Ashur, uh, King Xerxes. Um, and really, Esther and Mordecai, what we're going to see this morning is that it's two Jews uh, that are in the land of Persia. And they're really out of God's will. When you take a look at the book, you're reading the book, they're really out of God's will. But in spite of that, God is still going to use them, and he's going to make good on the situation that they're in, uh, even though they're not in line with God's will. Because really, they should have gone back. That's what God's will was for them, was for all the Jews to go back and re, resettle the land. Um, but they chose not to. They were free to do it, but a lot of them, not just Esther and Mordecai, but a lot of the Jews actually chose not to go back. I guess they didn't feel well, maybe they liked the weather there, I don't know. But they, uh, they chose to stay. Um, you know, maybe they had good business there, who knows. But, but Esther and Mordecai, uh, they stayed. They were one of the ones that 
page will automatically, you already had a bad ruling and they just didn't go back. Um, and then we'll also see that they didn't necessarily even rule on it. So that they could be, uh, even in the page and empire, they didn't necessarily include them in the application. So, so we'll see that um, as we go through uh, both. The great thing we'll see is that even though they are not in the zero code and not necessarily living readily, um, they're still usable documents, still usable applications. And that's what we want all, even though they're not perfect, um, they may be close docs and all of them are for the situation. Thank God for that. So chapter one, verse one, Esther says, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces uh, from India to Ethiopia. And in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Susa in the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all the officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So here in the beginning, we're introduced to King Ahasuerus, who's really the most mystery of virgins. Ahasuerus would be his Hebrew name, uh, in Greek his name would be Virgin. So if you look at the secular uh, history of the Hebrew name, the Virgin is the Persian uh, king, really infamous for um, being a ruler over his time. His father was Darius I, his grandfather was Cyrus the Great, and he ruled the Persian Empire for 21 years, uh, from 485 to 465 BC. Shushan, the citadel, we see that's where the setting takes place. It says they're, they're in uh, Shushan, the citadel, and that's really the winter palace. Uh, they have a massive kingdom. Like we just read, there it stretches all throughout, I mean, from Egypt all the way to India and uh, all the Middle East. So um, it was a massive, massive kingdom of many provinces that he ruled over. But he had uh, several palaces, and one of them is this winter palace in Shushan, uh, the citadel. So he's throwing a feast here, and it lasts about six months. Now, it doesn't really seem logical that he had everybody come at one time, all the rulers, all the princes. I mean, the, the empire would be leaderless, and anyone could just come in and just take over and do whatever they wanted. So it makes more sense. He probably just had like a rotating kind of schedule where he'd have one, one group come from one area, one group come from the other area, you know, and they probably had a, a big party like that. And then at the end of the feast, there's a six, seven-day feast. Um, we're not really given the reason why he's doing this. We don't know why he uh, has, has the, the big feast. Scripture doesn't reveal that to us, uh, but when you look at secular history, and thankfully we actually do have a, a Greek historian named Herod Scotus, and uh, due to his work, we know that this is really his uh, preparation for the invasion of Greece. If you look in the historical setting, um, his father, Darius I, was defeated by Greece in 490 BC, and so he was trying to prepare to go back again and start afresh, and then he took over, so now you have Xerxes wanting revenge, essentially, and also he wanted to expand his kingdom into Europe, and to get into Europe to be able to go through Greece. Um, so he was going to continue on these Persian Greco wars, essentially, and that's what this big party was. It took him four years to plan this thing, and he was trying to get support, you know. Even though he's a king, he's still trying to get political support. Hey, let's go and fight this war. And, uh, and actually, it, it's a massive army that he gets together. Some estimates are in the millions. Um, so this is a massive, massive army, so it took a lot to get him together move uh, that army, which they say is one of the reasons he failed, because the Greeks just had plenty of time to get ready. <laughs> you know, all for all the planning, there's a little, little overkill, I guess, on, on his part. And uh, he ultimately fails. Uh, he was a failure in that invasion. 
see in 480 BC, the Persian navy was destroyed. In 479 BC, the Persian army was defeated. The Greeks beat them back. And that was that was his teaching base at the time. And that's actually where he knew best for this. He had an authority in the name of that. And you preparing this battle, preparing to go to battle, is what we'll see in chapter one. And then over a period of about four years, where we pick up chapter two, and that's where Esther comes into the picture. Is that when he comes back from this war, he comes back and defeat and destroying the Medes, and that's where Esther comes into the picture, and that's where we pick it up. So, verse five, uh, we pick up the story there, and you'll see the setting is uh, is an interesting one. It says, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present, which he came to see well, from great to small, and the court of the guard and of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen, and sculptured on silver rods and marble pillars. And couches of gold and silver on mosaic, pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king, in accordance with the law, and the drinking was not compulsory. And so so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. You know, so basically the setting you have is they're just living it up. They're having a feast, the wine's flowing, and they're having a, a drunken party, basically winter palace and you're seeing all the gold and all the jewels and all the splendor you're seeing really uh, selling it on and you know so when they were go to war that's a time to see these these people come down uh, verse 9 though uh, we see queen vashti also made a feast for the women of the royal palace which belonged to king ahasuerus and on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine or drunk he commanded menhemen and abisha arbona bigtha Bagatha, Geshar, and Tarshish, seven eunuchs, uh, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. And we'll see these eunuchs come back into the picture as well. Uh, eunuchs are essentially male servants that have their reproductive organs cut off, if you will. Um, and we'll see that doesn't make them too happy. We'll see that later. We'll see them actually regret ending up with eunuchs doing that, and I think that will be true. Um, but they'll, they'll try to do something about it later on. But that's these eunuchs that serve him and serve in his presence that King's not very nice to many eunuchs, but we'll see that. Verse 11 says uh, they were, these eunuchs were sent to bring ca- Queen Vashti before the king wearing a royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. So she's refusing to come. She didn't want to be used in that. I can't really blame her. You know, what lady would want to be invited to this drunken party of your husband and basically parading around in front of all his friends and associates? Um, so I can't really blame her for saying, not really my cup of tea. You know, <laughs> I don't want to go. You know, um, But nobody did that to the king. No one refused the king's court, especially uh, Hasuerus. So he was very furious, and his anger burned within him. So verse 13 says, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Tarshana, Geshar, Abinasha, Tarshish, Mez, Mishina, and Memucan, and seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and rent tithes from the kingdom. So he asked him, he's like, what shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. So now he's going to get a response from his drunken friends. So that's always the best wisdom, right, is from your drunken buddies. So we'll see what great wisdom they come up with. So Memukin answered before the king and the princes, 
Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes. Not sure how she did that, but she wronged them all. And all the people who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, so everybody, she wronged them all. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes, and when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath, and if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be reported in the law that the Persians and the Medes that it will not be altered, but that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than the queen. And when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wise, will honor their husbands both day and night. And the reply pleases the queen and the princes, and the king did according to the word and the king. And he sent letters to all the king's provinces, each province, and transcripts into every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house, and the speech of the women be heard by the people. So one thing to keep in mind when you're reading this section of the scriptures is that whenever we're studying the Bible, some things are just kind of reported. Uh, one way of understanding is some things are just simply described, not necessarily prescribed. It's not as though God's saying, this is a good way of doing things, and this is how you should go. Essentially, some things are just simply described for us. And really, that's what you have here. You have him simply describing a pagan king with his pagan buddies getting drunk and having a feast and coming up with some great idea of how to deal with this viper that would come to attack him. <laughs> this is not God saying, uh, you know, men are the masters and putting down women, you know. I mean, there's enemies of the Bible. There's enemies of God out there who will jump on scriptures like this and say, see, God hates women, you know, and, and wants to put them down in a second, you know. Uh, and it's not that at all. It's just simply the Lord describing what this guy is doing, and it's just wrong what they're doing. I mean, it's just a drunken mess, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and it's not good advice at all. You know, but that's how the world is. Am I right? I mean, the world has no idea what marriage is, what family is, or, or what's right and wrong to do within the marriage of a believer. I mean, this guy's about to divorce his wife because she wouldn't come to his father's defense. I mean, how silly is that? But, I mean, you hear this stuff all the time in the world. I mean, when you look at the world and you look at what goes on out there, you have husbands divorcing their wives for really no reason at all. Just some simple, trivial thing that can be worked out, and they're just like, I'm done. You've done it enough for me. And that's how pride is. Families ripped apart. Things go on. Uh, but they think they're smart. They think they're wise, and they think they're doing the right thing. Uh, but that's how the world is. They're just in darkness. They just don't understand. And this king is not a good example at all. I mean, we're going to see King Ahasuerus. He's really a, just a, he's a drunkard. He has a temper on him. This guy loves war. He makes quick emotional decisions. He's a sexually immoral man. He's really a bad husband. Uh, he's not a believer at all, and he's, you know, certainly he's choosing to sub this guy out. You know, ask the women how they feel about that choice. <laughs> I mean, he's not a good man at all. He's a great example of what a, what a bad husband should be or is. But thank God we have God's word, and God has clearly explained to us how believing him, how following him, what a family should be and that's what we hold on to it doesn't matter what the world says out there i mean the world really does have no clue i mean they, they just they just lie i mean they think it's that a man and man is a marriage or a woman and woman is a marriage or or a man with many wives is a marriage you know polygamy is okay you know they, they have all kinds of things they come up with to throw people off and they think divorce you can divorce for anything you know and is that prescribed differently whatever they say on the paper, I mean, they just have all kinds of things that they come up with. But thank God we have his word that 
clearly defined as both both male and both man and woman, and it's this loving relationship and raising their children in God ways that grows up in that love alone can be lived out in a loving relationship. Well, when you follow that, you live by that, whether no matter what the world says or what they come up with or what they change or the law, we change to what God really is, and it changes what's right. And we share that. There's two for twos out there. What's your marriage? It's a man and a woman. How should you live? Well, it draws a lot of worry back. Well, how, how is a divorce happen? Well, there's only several ways that God allows that, and it's clearly defined scripturally, and that's it. And we stick to that with both God and each other. We thank God for that. Because you look around the world, it's a mess, you know. And they try to legislate morality, which is interesting. You know, they're trying to pass this law, these people are trying to say, well, let's pass this law so women will love their husbands, you know. <laughs> and, and it'll be good in the home. I mean, that's what they're trying to do here. How silly is that? But you, you can't legislate morality either. You know, and you look around the world and you just see just uh, how they attempt to do this in different areas and it just, it's just never right. No one trying to do it now. And then it's, it's uh, we have God's word and he says marriage is between a man and a woman and it's a loving relationship and we should live it that way. So chapter two, like I said, we'll pick back up. Uh, there's about a four-year gap here and this is where he's gone off to war now, fought the Greeks, uh, he's lost badly, miserably, and he's come back, and you see that he's actually missing his wife a little bit. So chapter 2, verse 1, we see after these things, so not only these things taking place for two's sake, like I said, after the war's sake, that he's not been through. It says, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Bathsheba and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he's kind of lamenting a little bit. He's like, oh, man. Back from the war, I kind of wish I could call my wife, and I'm not with my wife, but you know, I made this decree when I was drunk, and now I'm in a real bad spot, you know. And, and he's kind of missing her, and you know, what had been decreed against her, I think he's almost kind of second guessing at this point. But we'll see here in verse 2 that the men that told him to do this, they don't want Vashti back because they're a little concerned themselves. I mean, if she gets put back in office, she's not going to be too happy with those guys, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now she's back in power, like, who, who put you up to this, king? Oh, them over there, you know. So verse 2, we actually see that they, they advise the king differently. So verse 2 says, Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, and to the women's quarters, and their custody is to die, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this then pleased the king, and he did so. So imagine that. That pleased the king. Let's go around and get all the beautiful women, bring them into my harem, into my you know concubines, and we can. I can have all these pretty young ladies, and then we can just put this place down. So they really applied to the king's lustful behavior in gathering all these young ladies for his kingdom. And he's more than willing to go along with it. He's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So these advisors got their way. Vashti's not going to be put back in power. And basically, he'll be able to pick a new queen, and the king's all for it. So verse 5 says, In Shushan the Citadel, uh, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And this is where we get introduced to Mordecai, and we get introduced to Esther for the first time. So he's the son of Jairus, he's the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, and he's a Benjamite. And that's what we know of Mordecai. He was a Jewish man, living in Persia, and he was a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, uh, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And that was the second exile in the southern uh, 
seen in any of his transformation. And that Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. So Hadassah was Esther's Hebrew name, and the Persian name of Esther Persian name of Esther was meant special. And that was his uncle's daughter, so that makes her Mordecai's cousin. So, but she had neither father nor mother, so essentially they died. And she was an orphan, and then Mordecai brought her in his name, raised her as his own daughter, but really they were her cousin. So he raised her like a daughter. So the young woman was lovely. She was beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So that's what we know of Mordecai, and that's what we know of Esther, and that's where we pick up the story. Uh, again, we'll see verse 8. She's going to be taken into the, the collection that's going on, where they're going in and gathering all the young virgins for it to be a part of the um, contest and everything. So, so verse 8 says, So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel in the custom of the guy, that Esther also was taken to the king's place. Now, that's a key word there. She was taken. You know, some like to think that Mordecai volunteered it, you know, almost kind of put her into it and said, hey, uh, maybe you could win the contest, you know. But I don't believe that at all. I mean, these are some key words here where it says Esther was taken to the king's palace, being the care of the guy, the custodian of the women. Now, the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations for her beside her allowance. And then seven choice maidservants were provided for her for in the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Now, Esther had not revealed her people or family, so Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening. So and that's kind of a key verse there, too. I mean, if he had freely offered her up, you know, why is he pacing back and forth outside the gate every night? Well, I mean, she was pregnant and everything, <laughs> so they were living right. Uh, but he's a, he's a confirmed father, you know, basically his daughter had been taken from him to this wicked king's palace, um, and he's having no concern for it, obviously. So those are some key key words there. Now, it's interesting, too, that he charged her not to reveal their family and their origins, because uh, it kind of shows their mentality, kind of like we were talking earlier. They're really not in God's will. They should be in Israel right now. That's where they should be. They should be in Israel with God's people, in God's land, rebuilding the temple and the city and everything. They've chosen not to be that. So they're here in Persia, but on top of that now we're seeing, you know, they're even trying to hide the fact that they're a Jew there. So they're really not even living according to God's law, even where they're at. They're in Persia, because if they were, they'd be clearly known uh, that they were Jewish. They wouldn't be eating certain foods, they wouldn't be doing certain things, they'd be holding certain festivals and so on. Um, but they're not doing that. Uh, so he charges her to keep it a secret, so we kind of get some insight into, you know, just how they're living. You know, and you can't have it both ways. You know, I mean, from what it appears, Mordecai's desiring to be in the world. He wanted to stay in Persia. He wanted to stay in the capital city of the empire, obviously, where all the money and influence is. So he wanted to be there. And Esther's kind of along with him for the ride. It kind of seems to be that way. Uh, but you really can't have it both ways. You can't be in the world and following God, you know. And that's the choice that he had to make. Do I go back to Israel or do I stay here and be where the world is? I can get the money. I can get the power. Or do I go and be with Israel where there's suffering, hard work, hard labor, they're surrounded by enemies, they're having real hard times, real pain and stuff, uh, you know, and that's the decision that he had. And that's a decision he has as well, you know, and unfortunately he's trying to make it for them. The better way to have it, I can get the money and be with the influence, rather than choosing to serve and, and suffer with, with 
God's people. Because even though they're suffering a little while here on earth, they're going to have an eternity there in heaven when they rest with God. You know, one of the things I love about Moses, the prayer life of Moses was, uh, and I always remember whenever he, whenever these types of decisions come up, because Moses, remember the story, he was raised in, in the, the palace of the king at that time. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace, and he was potentially in line to, to be the next Pharaoh, you know, which means that he would be in power, he would have the money, he would have the wealth, he could gather all the resources together if he wanted to, too. And he had a true decision to make. You know, he saw his people suffering, he saw the Israelites suffering, and he saw himself living lavishly in the palace. And there was a point where he made a decision, and it's actually a story in the scripture for us, that he had to make a choice to either go and suffer with his people for a short time here on earth, but he knew there was reward to do for eternity. Or he could stay where he was in the palace and enjoy all the pleasures that the palace provided for him, but he knew that would be a very temporary thing, and that in eternity he'd be suffering. You know, and that's the decision that he had to make. Thankfully, he made the right decision. He said he left that palace. He said, I don't want these temporary worldly pleasures, because these are there for the taking and to get them out. I want nothing to do with these worldly pleasures temporarily, and there's no reward in eternity for this. You know, I'm going to choose to identify with my Jewish brothers, and I'm going to suffer with them, and I'm going to go through what they're going through because I know it's temporary, but the reward will be eternal. You know, and that's our decision as well, and the right decision is just like Moses, is that even though we, we don't take part in the world, which means we're not going to enjoy the riches, we're not going to enjoy the pleasures, and that's fine. Uh, we know that our reward is in eternity. Even though there's some hard times, we can still have joy in the middle of it, like it says in the storm, while we're serving the Lord, while we're living for Jesus, we can have joy in the middle of it, even though there's tough times at times. Um, but the reward is that we will be there with him in heaven, uh, we'll be in eternity forever, and that's what's going to last forever. Like Jesus says, we know if we talk about Christ and the pleasures in heaven, that this is actually how we do that, and that's what we should be about, about living for Jesus, stacking our treasures in heaven. too is also how you be a light in the world because if you're not running after the things they're running after if you're not chasing everything they're chasing after they're going to notice the difference they're going to know if you're not doing the things they're doing and they're going to wonder why and they're going to ask questions you know that's really how you're a light in the darkness <laughs> you know they're going to look at you well you're different you're not doing what the world is doing you're not chasing after what the world's chasing after and why is it and then that opens those doors to freely share and say yeah it's because i follow jesus because i know the truth and this is authentic and it's all going to burn I'm not going to invest my time in things that are going to rot away or rust away or get eaten by moths or thieves can steal. You know, I'm going to stack them in heaven and no thieves can get there and no moths can use up and no rust can touch it. And I'll be waiting there for them when I show up meeting them. And we can share that with people. So the decision is there, and that's what all of us have to make that choice. Are we going to live for Jesus? Are we going to live for the world? Fortunately, we get to be Mordecai, who did choose to stay, and he did choose for certain reasons. He didn't know exactly why, but he chose to be there just so he could be where the capital is, where the power is, where the influence is, uh, where he's comfortable, whatever. And that's really why they're in that position. Now his daughter's taken away from him. I mean, if they'd been in Israel, she wouldn't have been taken away. You know, now his daughter's taken away. She's in this palace. She's all concerned. Um, and we're going to kind of, the story kind of picks back up, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. But even in the middle of that, and that's a great thing about the book of Esther, we'll see, even though that they're not in God's will for so 
distributing the word. Uh, now they're in this kind of a trying time where she's been taken. She's been there with all the other ladies. And we're kind of concerned. We're going to see that God's sovereignty is still in there. God's hand is still among this. And he's even going to do that with them. So verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into the king Hasherus, to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. Uh, for thus were the days of the preparation apportioned, six months for myrrh, six months for perfume preparation, uh, for beautifying women. Basically, they just had all access to the beauty shop for about a whole year. Uh, can't really detail it. You know, they had a credit card, hey, go spend what you want. You know? <laughs> That's basically where they were. But it's not so much of a beauty pageant when we see that. Uh, to thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of the chancellor, uh, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She did not go into the king again and say, unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So really they were being prepared to go and essentially sleep with the king. Indicated there by their going in the evening and their leaving in the morning. And they just went back. So this really wasn't being prepared for. They're not being really so much put into a beauty pageant uh, in this town. They're performing in America in a real sexy, miscuous way or whatever they are performing Miss Universe. Uh, that's not really what's happening. This is a pagan king trying to fulfill his lustful desires, and he's just going to put them to sleep with his wife. That's essentially what's going on. And if Esther's going along with this, you know, but it's hard to be hard on her. You know, I mean, she's in a tough spot. Mordecai, you know, put her in a tough spot, really, by choosing not to leave for Israel. She got taken, thrown in there. You know, her life is on the line. Um, she already is seeing what happened to King Vashti, all these things, you know. Um, so it's hard to be hard on her, you know. If, you know. When you get put in tough spots, it's quick to judge someone when they do get put in a tough spot. But when you get put in a tough spot, it's hard to say what they're doing. You know, I mean, we all like to think if we were born in Nazi Germany, We'd be hiding the Jews, or we'd be protecting them, or we'd be the one doing it. You know, but if you, you know, but until you're in that position, it's hard to say what you would do. But here's Esther in a tough spot. She's doing the best she can with the situation. Um, but here she is. You know, and we're going to see that God is going to make make good of this. He's going to make good out of this situation ultimately. So, verse 15. Says now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, had wanted. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in her tenth month, which was the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So the key verse there is Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. And that's really God's sovereignty. That's God working this thing out. He's like, all right, this is the situation. It's not ideal, you know, but I'm going to work this out here. And we'll see he has a plan and what he's working towards. And Esther's going to be a part of it. He's chosen to do this. He's going to have favor in uh, the eyes of all around her, and there's a purpose for that. And we're going to see she ends up getting chosen by the king. That means now she's the queen of the empire, and God's going to be able to use her in that position, and we'll see that as we we go on in the book of Esther. Verse 19, we see this kind of like a 
thrown in there, there's a plot that they're going to, that they knew it could come back in the picture, and that's why they didn't see it. But when the virgins were gathered together the second time, uh, Mordecai sat with them with great honor. So again, we just see him thrusting their king into a wicked man he is. So now he's got a queen, but he goes out and gathers even more virgins. He's just building his own trigger to gain as big as he can. This time Mordecai's in the gate, which means you got promoted. Now he's actually not outside the gate wondering what's happening to Esther, but now she's the queen, even though uh, along with her. So, verse 20. So now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. Uh, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when uh, she was brought up by him. And in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthing and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Again, I can't really blame him for what he did to them. Why did he go angry? Um, but we don't know exactly the details, but I can imagine that he got furious for one of the reasons. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name, and when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed. And both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, he's not immediately rewarded for this. He prevent his, uh, prevented the assassination of the king, uh, but we'll see later on the king remembers him and what he did, and he does eventually get rewarded in the Bible, and these guys, uh, they mean guys as well. They believe that they purposely did. In chapter 3, we get introduced to Haman. In chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agite. Now, three years have passed now, in chapter 3, you know, Queen Esther has been queen for several years now. She's been relatively peaceful within the kingdom. She's been the queen ruling and reigning alongside the king. And uh, now we're going to get a, a challenge that comes up. And it's in the form of Haman. He's the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. And he advanced him and, and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were within the gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay any homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai, and he said Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So he didn't really want to get revenge on Mordecai, because I'm going to take it a step further. I'm just going I'm to kill Haman now. I'm going to kill them all. He just wants to wipe out all the Jews within uh, the kingdom. So in the first month, which is the, the month of Nisan, the 12th year of Ahasuerus, they cast Tyr, which is another way of saying a lot, right, a lot. They're casting lots of uh, dice to determine the will uh, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, uh, which is the month of February. Then Haman said to the king of Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and that's true. And they do not keep the king's laws, and that's not true. Just because one man broke the law didn't mean they're all a bunch of law 
twisting things and trying to see the case and basically cause confusion all to do this. Therefore, it is not fitting in the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring them to the king's uh, treasury. And that was a several million dollars, basically, worth of money. So, and I'm sure the king wanted it because the king had just fought a war and probably emptied his treasury trying to fight that war, and then he lost. So he, he probably got a, a, a negative balance on his bank account. <laughs> so here comes Haman saying, I'll fill that thing up. I'll give you millions of dollars. Let me go and do this. And that's essentially the, the deal that he's presenting before him. So, verse 10, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Amadatha, the Agagite. These are the key verses of the enemies of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. So this is the plan. This is what's put forth by Haman. I'm going to make you rich again. I'm going to put tens of millions of dollars into this thing. Let me go and kill all these Jews. Essentially, he's kind of planning just to take their stuff and then give it to the king. Now, the enemy of the Jews is an interesting verse because what this is going on here, this goes back hundreds of years. And as you study the scriptures, you'll see throughout the Bible, the Amalekites are an interesting group of people. And it says in the very beginning there in verse 1, it says that he's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, that could refer to a certain territory within the Persian Empire, but it could also refer to that he is the descendant of King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites back in the day. And I tend to believe that's what the case is here. It seems to make more sense that they're going to descend this region, especially when he's referred to as the enemy of the Jews. And it also kind of highlights what's going on between him and Mordecai. Because that's kind of the question of, is why didn't he bow to Haman? And there's nothing in the Jewish law saying you couldn't pay homage to Haman and Ephistus. Uh, it wasn't like he was worshiping him. He wasn't sworn to worship him. Um, but Mordecai chose not to. They just kind of took it to another level. Like, no, I'm not going to bow down or pay homage to him. So one of the two reasons is why. Why would he do that? Well, you know, it could be that he just didn't want to, you know, he thought maybe his worship of this man. Or it could be that he recognized who he was as a descendant. It could very well be that he recognized that he was an Amalekite, that he was a descendant of King Agag, and he knew their history. He's like, yeah, I know these people. <laughs> you know, I know what they tried to do to us. Because if you do read their history, uh, you can go back to Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, and you can actually see there when the Israelites were coming out of the land of Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them from behind and pick, tried to pick off the weakest link, basically. And then Joshua goes around and attacks them. Uh, they win the battle, but God declares at the end of that battle, he's like, because of what they did to me, because of what the Amalekites did to my people, I'm going to destroy these people. He actually made that decree. He said, this is going to happen. And you can read that in Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. And he actually made the decision to do just that when King Saul came into power, when they did enter the land and King Saul was anointed king, he actually gave the command to King Saul, and we see that in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, that he was to go and destroy uh, the Amalekites. Now the command in that chapter there is an image of King Jehoash, where he basically says, wipe them all out. Men, women, children, animals, just wipe everything out. And from King Jehoash, that when he understands it from God's perspective, he knew what these people were capable of and he knew what they would do. And he's trying to protect his people from what the Amalekites were doing. And he made that decision to do so. King Saul, we find out, was not obedient. If you read that chapter, you find out that King Saul did not go through with it. He kept King Agag alive. And in fact, 
opposition and family members that kept a bunch of the animals alive. And Sam here was complaining about what the prophet Samuel. And Samuel's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you had told the wife and all out. And you didn't do it. And he's like, and he, initially he said he did. He's like, yeah, I did God's will. And he's like, no, you didn't do God's will. You didn't fulfill it all. You disobeyed. And you should have done it all. You know, you should have completed exactly what he told you to do. And he's like, well, I got all these choice animals. We're going to go sacrifice, you know. We're going to have a big big feast and sacrificing. And Samuel's like, you know, to obey is better than not to obey. And Saul had the king taken away from him right there because he disobeyed. But also he had his wife taken away as well because when you read later on in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we find out that it was an Amalekite that actually took the life of Saul. So God was not only trying to protect the whole Israel nation, but he was also going to be trying to protect Saul because he thought it was coming from the Lord. So Saul refused to kill the Amalekites and then turn their king around and kill them. Quite the story. So the line went on. King of, Ga- king of God's line went on. And we see hundreds of years later, now we got Haman, who's basically a descendant of Matthew, remembers his history. You know, got it passed on family generations. And now he's attempting to destroy all the Israelites. And that's the situation we find ourselves in now. If King Saul had been obedient to what God's command was, even if he didn't agree with it or didn't fully understand it, he should have still been obedient to it, then they wouldn't even be in the situation that they're in now. So how disobedience to God's will and God's command can play such a mess in our lives is just clearly displayed when we see the life of Saul and what's going on in his own life. It's always there where it goes. Even if we don't fully understand what God is doing, even if we don't fully understand what the end result is going to be, you know, if we, if we know God's commanding us and calling us to do a certain thing, we need to be obedient to that. We need to do what God's will is for our lives. You know, even if we don't fully understand, even if we don't have all the answers, we just know God loves us, and what he called me to do, I'm going to go do it. Whatever comes my way is going to come my way. But I know I'm in the right, I know I'm in God's will, and I'm going to do it. You know, so here we see the end result is that people lost their lives, and now the Jewish people as a whole are threatening the safety now of the genocide that's coming their way. But another way of looking at this, too, is the, the Amalekites, it's always a type of the flesh. You know, when you get into the study of the Bible, there's certain types, you know. Um, for example, God instituted the uh, temple worship when he instituted the sacrifice for that pure lamb in the once a year for the atonement of the people. You know, it had to be a pure, spotless lamb and so on. Um, and that was a type of Christ because of what it taught the people was there had to be shedding of blood for remission of sin. It had to be a pure, spotless lamb. It could be, you know, it couldn't be sinless, basically. And that's why when Jesus came on the scene and all these names that they called him was, Lamb of God. And why they called him the Lamb of God is because they understood that Lamb was a type of Christ. By understanding that Lamb and the position in the law, you understood more so who Jesus was and why he came and what he did. Now, the Amalekites is another type, though. And it's the type of, of the flesh. And that's why you can look at the Amalekites when you study the scriptures. The Amalekites are always a type of the flesh. Essentially, what God's trying to teach us here is, <coughs> is that you got to deal with the flesh. You got to kill the flesh. Because if we don't kill that flesh, it's going to come back and it's going to bite us every time. And what he's saying is that sin is in our lives because we have sinful flesh. Because if you read Romans 7, chapter, uh, verse 18, Paul clearly states in there that there's nothing good in my flesh. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And that is our situation. That's all of our situations. Yes, we're born again. Yes, the Spirit of God is living inside of you. The, the inward man, the inward woman is, is being renewed 
inside and it's being controlled through the spirit in your heart. But you're filling your sinful body, you're filling your sinful flesh, and that flesh wars against you and it's full of iniquity. And it's a constant struggle that you're going to be in until the day that you die. Right. And that's just how it is. When you finally die and your sinful flesh dies, then you get your glorified body and then you're in a glorified state where you will sin no more because you won't have that sinful flesh that you wrestle against. You won't be in this sinful world either. And Satan will be locked up. He won't be out there trying to tempt you and destroy you. So all those things will finally be removed and the eternal state and the glorified body will be. And thank God for that because <laughs> it will finally be done. You know, sin's taken care of, death is taken care of, and we're going to be paradise. But we're not there yet. So as it stands right now, we're filling this sinful body, we're filling this sinful flesh, and it is. We know type what our type of it is. And the way that we understand it is that the flesh has to be crucified. It has to be killed. Otherwise, it's going to come back and it's going to kill us. It's going to bite us. It's going to cause all kinds of problems. Just like the Amalekites. God said, how do you deal with the Amalekites? They have to be wiped out. They have to be destroyed. And if you don't destroy them, they're going to come back and they're going to bite you. They're going to come back and they're going to kill you. They're going to cause all kinds of problems. And that's how it is for us. You know, We're not to allow our flesh to control us. Otherwise, we're going to be in serious trouble just like Saul and we see with Jesus in the Bible. You know, we're to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. We're to feed, feed the spirit and not the flesh. You know, we feed the spirit by reading the word, by being in prayer, by being in fellowship. That's how we feed the spirit. That's how you grow strong spiritually. You feed your flesh by going out and doing all the flesh on your own. You know, eating food's one. You know, we eat food all the time. We're feeding our flesh all the time. But then also, too, you're giving away what? Music is one. Right. Images is one. Right. Pleasures is one. You know, the desires and the drives of the flesh. You know, we're always constantly feeding. You know, that strengthens the flesh. You know, but we should be feeding the spirit, not saying we should be feeding the flesh. You know, and that's where fasting comes in as well. When you consider fasting in the Christian life, that's one big key about fasting is that it weakens the flesh to a point where the spirit can be strengthened. You know, if you deny yourself the food or the desire of things, you know, it actually weakens the flesh and puts you spiritually conditioned as a strong person. And then that leads to spiritually more alive, I guess you might say, too, because you're communing better with God and those kinds of things. So fasting does that, and it is a key part of our Christian life as well. It should be fasting. Different types of fasts, and that's a whole other subject. But fasting is a big key. So if we don't kill the flesh like Saul, it's going to come back and bite us. You know, and there's all kinds of excuses we can come up with for not killing the flesh, or caving to the flesh, just kind of letting it hang around. Just oh, it's not so bad. You know, we hear people say that all the time. It's just a little white lie. You know, it's not a big deal. I can handle it. Just you know do it once in a while, you know, we just kind of cater to it, we kind of keep the flesh just kind of there, you know, I, I can indulge in it when I want to indulge in it, and then I go back to my spiritual life, you know, you can't do that, <laughs> it's all or nothing, you have to kill that flesh, you have to kill that flesh and get rid of it, you have to lift the spirit up, you have to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, like God says, you can't do one or the other, you can't try and keep the flesh around so you can indulge in it for a while, you got to get rid of it, and that's why whenever we read the scriptures, we're reading about the Amalekites, we're reading the scriptures, that's why we see it as a type of the flesh. And just as God dealt with the Amalekites, he's saying we must deal with our flesh. Otherwise, just as we see, it always comes back and it never goes away when it comes to the flesh. So we move on, verse 12. We see the king's reaction to Haman's decision here, or his plan at least. You know, it's not a good one. Uh, 
So verse 12 says, Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and the decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. So the king sat to the governors who were over each province, and the officials of all peoples, every province according to their scripts, every people in their language, and the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written on the seals of the king's city and house. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, month they died and to plunder their possessions a copy of the document was to be issued in as law in every province and then published for all the people that they should be ready for that day the couriers went out hastened by the king's command and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel so the king and Haman sat down to drink that's how he responds to Mordecai greatly mocked King Ahasuerus but the city of Shushan is perplexed so the people are concerned about what's going on here King's not concerned at all. He's just sitting down to get drunk again. So chapter 4, and we'll, we'll end on chapter 4, uh, we'll see how they re- how Mordecai and Esther react to this decree that they sent to, to annihilate the Jews. So chapter 4, this is verse 1. So when, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out in the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, so no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many laying sackcloth down to pray. So he gets the news. He's like, well, how do I get the king's attention? I'm going to make <laughs> put on all the sackcloth. I'm going to just cry in the middle of the city. I'm going to you know, march to the uh, palace, and I'll get the king's attention. And it worked. So verse 4, so Esther's maids immediately came and told her. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his clothes, or take his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hasbach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hasbach went out to Mordecai in the city square, and that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for the destruction which he was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead for him, plead before him for her people. So Hasbach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So he's kind of putting a little pressure on here because if you see that key word there in verse 8, he's like, and plead for him for her people. He's letting this eunuch know that she's a Jew. (laughs) He's letting it out. He's like, okay, she's a Jew. Go tell her, your Jewish people, that you need to go plead for them. You know, so now everyone knows Esther's a Jew, at least, you know, in Esther's little group there. So Mordecai's putting a little pressure on her. (laughs) Like, you're a Jew too. They know you're a Jew now as well. So what are you going to do, Esther? So verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hasbach and gave him a command for Mordecai. So this is kind of ancient day text message. (laughs) Kind of going back and forth there. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself had not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So he told Mordecai Esther's words. Now what a marriage relationship that is, right? I mean, some of you ladies think you got it right. Imagine if your husband didn't talk to you for an entire month, and then when you're considering to go see him, you're considering he's going to kill you. I mean, that, 
loves the Lord. He's uh, quite, quite the situation. Uh, I keep laying it out to Mordecai. Look, you know, I'm a little hesitant here. My life's on the line. Uh, you know, and this, this is the marriage I'm in. I'm a little concerned, you know, uh, if you haven't followed the protocol, you know, basically what's going to happen, your life's on the line here. So, verse 13, so Mordecai responds, Mordecai told them, it's going to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape from the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yeah, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, and how, how true that is. You know, God's plan will succeed. God's plan will happen. You know, regardless of whether Esther takes part or not, his will will be done. But what he's laying out there here is that you have an opportunity because who knows, perhaps God allowed you to be where you are, to be in the position that you're in, so that you could be used at this moment in time to be a part of God's plan and make his will come on earth. And he's laying that out, which is true. You know, and it's totally true for all of us as well. You know, wherever God has you, you know, wherever you're, you're at at work, wherever you're at in your home, wherever you're at in your community, wherever you're at you're doing, you know, perhaps, you know, it's for a reason. And it's in God's plan and he wants to do something in your life. And that's basically what he's laying out to, to Esther here as well. He's like, look, who knows if this is the case or not. Uh, only God knows. Uh, but it might just be. You know, and we can be disqualified. That's something that's true as well. If we choose not to be used by God, he can just fluff, fluff us up and just move us to the side and get someone else. You know, his will will be done. It's just a matter of if we want to be used by God, if we want to be available to God, and then he will use us if he's willing. And that's what he's laying out to Esther here. You know, and we can all go a few different ways in our lives where, where that's true. And so we can all look back and see that. You know, I mean, I know for my life even, you know, I was joining the military, um, I was trying to go to Florida. <laughs> I was in Alaska at the time. I was serving with my brother. And they were trying to get to Florida. I want to go to Florida. Well, you have your dream suit. Everyone in the military is familiar with your dream suit. So I pulled out five bases I wanted to go to, and I put all Florida bases there. And then I got my orders, and I got sent to California. And I got my orders, and I'm like, where is this? And I'm like, I don't want to go to California. I want to go to Florida. <laughs> you know? And I was the only one in my whole squadron that got that order. Everyone else was going to Virginia or Iceland or wherever else. And I went to California, and I was like, no, I don't want to go to California. So I ended up going to California, and I remember getting there, and I was just like, this is just miserable. I wasn't saved at the time, you know, so my flesh wanted Florida, <laughs> and here I am in California. And uh, I never had anything good in my mind about California. Growing up in the Midwest, all you see is what's on TV, or maybe you're seeing some freaking bloods and crips and gang warfare and you know, earthquakes and fires and all that stuff, you know, <laughs> drug trafficking, and I'm just like, I don't want to be there, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, I had no desire, I wanted to be in Florida, you know, but here I got my orders, and I found myself somewhere in California, you know, but looking back at my time, you know, that's where I got saved, I got saved because I was in California, and another guy was stationed there that I got to talk to, and, and he led me, and I went, you know, that's how I got saved, it was by meeting him. And it was also I was in California because I got saved there, and there was a Calvary Chapel right outside the gate. So due to my being there and getting those orders, I got introduced to Calvary Chapel, and it was by Lewis Houston. And after I got saved, I learned and, and grew and understood a lot just through being there. And I met Pastor Corey there. I met my wife there. I met, you know, I, you look back now. I mean, at that moment in time, I was like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> it's not in my plans, you know. But here I am, and now, and I look back, and I'm like, wow, man. 
God knew what was there for me. God knew what was planned for me, even if I didn't even write it in my book. And that's how he worked, you know, and even after I got saved, he's worked in my life a number of ways in that area. You know, there's things that just shouldn't have happened that happened. <laughs> you know, this is not in the plan, and all of a sudden that happens. And you're like, well, what's going on here? I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this, and this doesn't look good. But yet it is God's will, and God is working these things out and making things happen. And thank God for that, you know, because we don't see the big picture. We only see what's right in front of us. And thankfully we serve a big God who not only – loves us and cares about us and has good plans for us, but actually takes the time to work these things out on our behalf. And ours is just simply to be obedient. You know, and that's where Esther finds herself as well. So, verse 15, And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, uh, three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise until I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went his way and did according to all uh, that Esther commanded him. And Aaron and uh, he returned. And uh, we'll pick up next time uh, in chapter 5 and we'll finish the book of Esther next time. But So you see where she's at. You see the commitment that she has here. So she's like, you know, she's not wavering anymore. She's like, you know what, Mordecai's right. Perhaps I am human for this. Perhaps I am called to this. And this is why God allowed me to be here. This is why God allowed me to have favor in all the eyes of these people. And that favor in the eyes of the king was I got chosen to be the king. You know, God made a bad situation into something good. And now this is the opportunity I have to be used by God to not only save my life, but potentially save the lives of all the Jewish people throughout all the, the Persian Empire. You know, and she recognized that now. She has no more hesitation. And she's like, yeah, this is God's will. I'm going to do this. And I'm committed to this. And whatever happens, happens. If I perish, I perish. That's how our commitment level should be as well. You know, when it comes to serving the Lord, you know, Lord, what's your will for my life? What did you get to me with? What did you call me to do? And I'm going to do it. You know, wherever that means I have to live, that's where I'm going to live. Wherever that means I have to work, I'm going to work. Wherever that means I'm going to serve, I'm going to serve. You know, I'm going to talk to that person, I'll go talk to that person. You want me to have that hard conversation, I'll go have that hard conversation. <laughs> you know, you want me to fast, I'll fast. You want me to pray, I'll pray. You know, and that's what it should be when it comes to our life and following Christ. Because that's really all that God asks for us is, is just to simply be available. You know, it's about availability, not ability. I'm sure you've heard me say that before, right? Say that before. Uh, but it's so true. It's just simply I'm saved now. You're saved now. Do we want to be used by God in the short time that we're here on this earth until we go to be with him in all eternity? And if that answer is yes, which it seems Esther, uh, Esther's situation here, then it's all right, I'm committed. I'm all in. I'm going all in. Whatever you want to do with me, do with me. You know, I know it'll be good, even though it looks a little rough. You know, things. You know, I might make make it more difficult, make them causing problems, or make them bad decisions. You know, like even Mordecai and Esther kind of made some tough decisions there. But uh, you know, they're in the situation they're in, and God's going to make good of it. Um, but just being faithful, just being available, and being usable by God. So we see in our scripture this morning, uh, the first four chapters there. You know, the flesh has to be dealt with. You can't let it live on. You have to deal with it. You have to kill it. You have to get rid of the flesh. You have to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And that's key. If you want to have a spiritual life, if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to be used by God, that's, that's very key. You can't feed the flesh. you got to feed the spirit and have a life in the spirit. And obedience is better than sacrifice. You know, being obedient to God, what he's called you to do. Being obedient to his word and his will for your life is so important for all of us. You know, it's not 
go back harder to do. Commandments being the word, we need to be obedient to that, and we're going to live a successful Christian life. And then lastly, we're simply being obedient. You know, just like Esther, finding her own situation, perhaps God has allowed her to be where she is for this time and place. And we come to that realization just like Esther. Perhaps God has allowed us to be where we are for this time and for this purpose, and we ought to use it. And the question for all of us is, and even myself included, is will we be used by God? that is what God's calling us to do. And he wants that full commitment. He wants us to be right there with him all the time, not sitting at his throne saying one, word, one foot in the world, one foot in the world. I mean, he wants us to be with him all the time, walking and moving with him. And he's going to fit into our whatever we have for him. So be available to God and let him use you where you are and whenever he wants to use you. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Esther, just what we can learn from her life, just how you're using her and how you allowed her to be where she is, and, and that's our desire as well, Lord. Wherever you have her, whatever you have her doing, whatever you gifted us with, Lord, we want to be used by you. We don't want to be caught up in these worldly things, but we want to be walking in the Spirit, just strong after you, Lord, uh, fulfilling your vision, being about your business and your will and your honor. Lord, we know our time is short. We know you're coming to get us soon. for all of us, Lord. Give us the strength to do just that, to be open, to be willing, to be available, to be used by you whenever, wherever, and whatever you have us to do, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name.